Yes, Lord, this is our declaration. This is our testimony that God is good. Lord God, we, we know that when things look dark, it is so hard to praise. And yet, we know that praise really looks good on us. You said it. You said it in your word that praise looks good on us. And that, Lord, when we praise, our faith rises. So our Father, in this season of so many unknowns, this season that is characterized by so much fear, so much anger, so much polarization, Father, may your goodness, your goodness, give us a song to sing. And that we will be singing in the night. We will sing in the day. We will sing when we lie down. We will sing when we stand. We will sing when we go out because we are hemmed in behind and before by your love. We are led by you even when we cannot seem to see our way. You say that we have our being. We move in Christ. So our Lord, this is what we pray. As we hear the word, may that word be embedded in us. May it cause us to rejoice in the dark times. May it cause us, Lord, to act in righteousness when we cannot seem to see the right way to go. But your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to guide us. So we pray for Pastor Tim as he comes. We thank you, Father, for the time he has spent with you in the word. And we pray for ourselves that our ears will be open to hear and our hearts will be open to receive and a harvest will grow out of our lives. We pray this trusting and believing in the matchless, powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. I, I made this slide this week, and I wrote part 11, and I thought, that can't be right. Like, it doesn't feel like I've been here 11 weeks, so I've preached 11 times. But here we are, we're going to be in 1 John 1, 5, chapter 5, verses 6 through 12 this morning. So we'll have this week in 1 John, we'll have one more week next week in 1 John, and then we'll be on to a new series. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to 1 John. So as you turn there, like, so after a long day, like, one of the ways Vanessa and I like to relax is we to like, sit down and just watch a TV show. And like, at the end of a long day, like, I don't have the mental energy to like, really invest myself in a drama or like some super suspenseful or emotional show. And so we usually end up watching comedies. But not just like any comedies. Like we tend to watch comedies that we've watched the whole series like multiple multiple times before. Right? So like that just lets me like really turn my brain off and relax for a little while. Right? And so one of the shows we've watched from start to end a couple of times 
during our marriage is a show called The Office. And for those of you who are like unfamiliar with that show, like, it revolves around a group of co-workers who work at a paper company called Dunder Mifflin. And in one episode, right, the staff of Dunder Mifflin, they're having a Christmas party. And as happens in Christmas parties in office environments, they're having like a, a secret Santa gift exchange. But in this gift exchange, Michael, the boss, has Dwight. Right? He's this quirky, weird salesman that he has to give a gift for. And because like, Dwight is so quirky and strange and unusual, like not just any gift will do. Right? Like, and so Michael decides he's going to give Dwight a gift that he has to assemble himself. Right? And he's going to give it to him one piece at a time. Right? And so Dwight starts out, he gets like one piece into like this metal gear and like another piece shows up, and it's like all these metallic, kind of industrial-looking things. And like Dwight is trying to figure out, like, what in the world could this thing be? Like, first he guesses that, oh, it must be a gun. Right? And then he's like, well, figuring it can't be a gun, so maybe it's some kind of trap. Right? Maybe it's like a, a lathe. Like, he's totally befuddled by what this thing could possibly be. And then, like, Michael gives him the last piece, which is like this crank with a handle on it that you can like use to turn something. And like seeing that piece, like everything clicks in Dwight's mind. Right? And he realizes that the gift is a nutcracker. Right? Not like your traditional like wooden soldier nutcracker, but it's like super industrial, metallic, take the handle, spin the gears nutcracker that I've never actually seen in real life, but I kinda wish I had one. Right? But like here's the point. Like Every part of that gift was required to make the nutcracker work the way it was supposed to. The gift didn't make sense unless every part of the present was in place. Without the handle that he got at the end, the contraption was useless. The same thing is true in our quest to follow Jesus. We must follow the real and the full Jesus that is revealed in the Bible. If we just pick and choose the parts of Jesus that we like while disregarding the rest, like, whoever that imitation Jesus, right, who, like the white present, without a handle, like, is useless. That's what we see John telling us this morning in this passage. We're going to read, like I said, 1 John chapter, chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is what John writes. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. This life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And so what like John is saying here, if I could kind of try to summarize it, it's like living in Christ requires embracing every God-testified aspect of his 
life, and death. So now most weeks I try to like give us, to summarize the main idea of the passage in one kind of short, clear sentence to give us, to remember, right? That if, as you leave here, like everything else I say kind of flies out your head as you're driving out the parking lot, like hopefully at least that one sentence will stick in your head and be like, what was the sermon about? Well, at least I have one sentence. That's the hope. And so like, I try to make that sentence as short and succinct and as clear as possible. But I realize like this sentence like, is not the most succinct or clear summary statement I could have written. Like, and I spent a lot of time like, thinking about this passage, thinking about like, how can I make it short and clear and succinct, and like, that's the best I could do. It's a little confusing, it's a little wordy, it's not great, but I blame John. Like, like, so when I work on sermons, like the first thing I do is I read the passage and I write it out and I pray through it and then I like write down my own personal observations and I, I try to make a rough outline of what is going on. So I start there and then after I kind of get through that process, I, I turn to the experts and I'll, I'll read a few commentaries for authors who know their Greek way better than I do and like I'll try to understand what they're saying about the passage. And this week as I was preparing, like, I was really excited to get to the experts. Right? Because like, I read the passage, and I wrote it, and I looked at it, and I what is going on? Like, what is this water and blood stuff and three that testify? And like, I, was a little, I was struggling. Right? So like, I picked the first commentary, and I'm like, can't wait to have my eyes open, and like, everything made clear to me. And like, the very first sentence I read, the, my very first commentary is this. 1 John 5, 6 is perhaps the most perplexing verse in all of the Johannine letters. Like, thanks, dude. <laughs> like, so then that author goes on to give six possible interpretations of what water and blood could be, and he's like, well, maybe, possibly, this is the most right one. Like, not super helpful. All right, so I'm like, all right, one guy, whatever. So I turn to my second commentary, and his very first sentence is, like, this is a very difficult text to interpret. That's not super helpful. Right? So I spent a lot of time this week wrestling with this passage, right? trying to figure out first what it meant to John and his readers, and then like how does it apply to our lives as well. Right? In this sentence, right? living in Christ requires embracing every God-testified aspect of his life and death with the best summary I could come up with. Right? Again, there's three components to this sentence that I think are really important to understanding what's going on in the passage. So on the rest of our time together this morning, I just want to walk through the kind of those three key parts of that sentence and talk about what John was trying to say and what it means for our lives. So the first part of that sentence is living in Christ. In verse 12, John writes, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And John speaks kind of in various places in this letter about like believing in Christ and remaining in Christ and having the Son and knowing the Father and being born of God and walking in the light. Right? These are all different ways that John is talking about what it means to be a Christian. But taken as a whole, so think about them all together. Like the one thing that they make clear is that being a Christian is about more than just a mere acknowledgement of a set of facts or like a one-time profession of faith. Like, to be a Christian is ultimately a way of life. And many 
churches and evangelists over the years have done people a great disservice when they've sold them a soft gospel that says, if you just pray this prayer, like you just sign this card, like, and you say that I believe in Jesus, right, then you're saved and you can go on living however you want. And of course, they would say, like, we want you to do certain things, but at the end of the day, like, as long as you've prayed that prayer, you're good. Right? But John has no time for that. Over and over again in this letter, he has told us that our righteous living is a sign that we are Christians. To be clear, not that our good deeds save us, or that our good deeds help us earn salvation, or help us get into heaven, but our good deeds show that we have been saved. And so if we don't have those good deeds, then there's a sign that we have not been saved. And here he says, whoever has the Son. To have something, to have it, if more than just acknowledging that thing, or like praying brief attention to that thing. Our daughters, especially our older two, Adelia and Evelyn, they've been really enjoying going to the playground this summer. And it's a little nerve-wracking sometimes, but they really enjoy like, testing their limits on the playground to see like, how high they can climb, like, what they can do, where they can get into. And overall, like, they do a pretty good job. But every once in a while, they push themselves a little bit too far. And I'll hear, Papa! Will you help me? And like, they push themselves a little bit further than they're comfortable. Right? Look at themselves stuck in a position where they can't get out or they're, they're scared of falling. So I'll run over to them and I'll grab them and I'll like carry them down and I'll help them out of their predicament. Right? And as I grab hold of them, I'll often say, especially if they're really upset, like, I have you, it's okay, like, I've got you, you're safe. And now, like, if after holding them for a couple of seconds, I let them go and they fell, they would come up crying, like, and they would say, like, I can hear their voice saying, like, you said you had me, right? And, like, when I tell my daughters I have them, I mean that I will keep holding on to them, especially in that situation. Like, and John has the same kind of idea in mind here when he says, we, whoever has the son. To have Jesus. It's not to hold on to him for a second in a time of need or in a time of crisis and then to discard him when the crisis has passed. To have Jesus. It's to hold on to him. To remain in him. To live in him in a way that is in accordance with all that he has called us to do. Like We see this kind of ongoing nature of having Jesus and the fact that John says that the result of having Jesus is having life. And the life John's talking about here is eternal life. So when we grab hold of Jesus, when we have Jesus, like, we enter into eternal life right then and there. Like, like we don't believe in Jesus and then wait to die to reap the benefits of going to heaven. Like, if you have the Son, you have eternal life right now. But that means, like, just as it's unthinkable, for us to one day in the new heavens and the new earth say, eh, I'm not going to hold on to Jesus today. Like when we're in heaven, the idea of letting go of Jesus will be unthinkable. But because we already right now have eternal life, John tells us that already the idea of grabbing hold of Jesus and then letting go should be unthinkable as well. And here's the point. Believing in Jesus, 
having the Son is an ongoing state. That means that we live our whole life in Christ. We live a life that is committed to thinking and acting in a way that He has called us to live. If we have the Son, as John says, it is because we have acknowledged that we can't live this life in our own power. And so having trusted in Him, we submit ourselves to Him, no matter what He called us to do. But that, that raises the question, like, how exactly do I know what it means to live in Jesus? If I'm going to identify myself with Jesus, if I'm going to walk with Him and be obedient to Him, like, how do I know what it is that Jesus has called me to do? And thankfully, like John points out here, we know because we have the testimony of God. In that summary statement we saw earlier, like I said, like living in Christ requires embracing every God-testified aspect. Like our knowledge of Jesus comes from the fact that God himself testifies about him. Like we don't just have to rely on word of mouth of somebody saying like, well, I think I heard Jesus say one time, or I think I saw Jesus do this one time. John writes, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of, the, of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. John is saying that God himself tells us who Jesus is. When we believe in the son, we believe in the one that God himself testifies about. So therefore, if you don't believe in the son, or if you, don't, if you reject certain parts of Jesus' teaching, then you're calling God a liar. But Hebrews 6.18 says it's impossible for God to lie. So to reject any part of who God says the Son is, it's to reject God. We can't pick and choose the parts we like and don't like about Jesus. We can't have a build-your-own-Jesus that we follow. John says, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. To believe in the Son of God is to accept everything that God has said about him. Which raises the question then, like, what does God say about him? In particular... What does God say about him that we are tempted sometimes to reject because we don't like it or because it makes us feel uncomfortable? And that leads us to the last part of the summary statement that we need to consider carefully. And that is every aspect of his life and death. John writes, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. And as we said at the beginning, this verse is a little bit tricky, or maybe very tricky, for a couple of reasons. And one is that it's not super clear what water and blood mean. It's also tricky because John is clearly writing to contradict some false teaching. But like, we don't have the other side of that phone call to know what the false teaching is. But John goes out of his way to emphasize that Jesus did not come by water only. But he came by, by blood and water. So whatever 
the false teaching was. Like, it suggests that like, there were some people teaching that Jesus came only by water. But that's not very helpful unless we know what John means by water. And like, there's a fair amount of disagreement and uncertainty about what is what water refers to. And kind of the details are kind of fuzzy. Right? But even though the details are fuzzy, the, the general consensus is that John's main point is pretty clear, which is this. Right? Water generally refers to Jesus' life and his ministry. Either because it's a reference to his baptism, like passing through water where he inaugurates his earthly ministry, or water to reference to like, the amniotic fluid of birth, right, which he's passed through to be born as a baby. So like, water refers to either his, to his life and his ministry. And I tend to think like, a reference to Jesus' baptism is more likely, probably because like, the following verses are all about the Spirit and God testifying like, and at Jesus' baptism, we see the Spirit descending like a dove to rest on Jesus. And we hear God the Father himself speaking from heaven, saying, like, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Right? So at Jesus' baptism, which kicks off his ministry, like, we see the Spirit and the Father actively testifying to Jesus' unique status as the Spirit-anointed Son of God. But ultimately, whether water is a reference to baptism or it's a reference to his birth, like, it's clearly pointing to his life. Right? And then there's blood. Right? But blood's a little easier to interpret. Like it, everyone pretty much agrees that like it refers to his death and the blood he spilled on the cross. Right? So when John says, like, Jesus came by water and blood, not water only, like, what he's saying is that like, Jesus' life and death both matter. Both are significant. If you're missing one of those, you don't have a complete picture of who Jesus is. And apparently there are some people in John's time who are teaching that only Jesus' life mattered, not his death. That it was only what Jesus taught, or his moral example that was significant, and not the fact that he died on the cross. And unfortunately, like, this idea hasn't gone anywhere in the 2,000 years since John wrote there are lots of so-called churches that would be happy to tell you that Jesus was a great guy. If everyone just loved their neighbor like Jesus, then the world would be a much happier place. We should all learn from his example of how to live. But then they would tell you, like, his death didn't mean anything. Jesus' death couldn't mean anything because like, you're a good person. So you don't need Jesus to die for your sins. You need to learn from his life and try to emulate him so we can all get along and make the world a better place. But we don't need his death. But John will not abide that kind of thinking. He says, he did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Both his life and his death matter. If you only have one without the other, you really don't have a full Jesus. Now I suspect most of us gathered here, most of us watching online, like we're happy to acknowledge that both Jesus' life and death are significant for our salvation. Like we know that it matters both that Jesus lived a sinless and perfectly obedient life and that he died on the cross in our place. Like we know that because of our sin, like we need a way to be forgiven. 
and that Jesus' death is the way that God had graciously provided for our sins to be dealt with. We know that. We know that his death mattered. We acknowledge that Jesus' death mattered for our salvation. But I fear that when it comes to our sanctification, like we sometimes lose sight of Jesus' death. Right? Or if put another way, like when we think about how to live our day-to-day lives, when we think about how we should live and think and act in the world, like our picture of Jesus starts to come a little heavy on the water and light on the blood. Right? When we start to think of, we start to ask the question, like, how does God want me to live? We tend to only think about Jesus' life and not his death. We think about loving others, which Jesus taught us in his life. We think about honoring God with our money, which Jesus taught about often during his life. We think about spending time in prayer, which Jesus modeled often during his life. But one command of Jesus that we don't spend much time thinking about, found in Matthew 16, and Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If we're not careful, it's easy to miss the weight of that statement. Jesus is calling us to take up our cross and follow him. But remember when Jesus said that, the cross was not some religious symbol. It was not the thing that the front of churches. It was not the thing that people wore on a necklace around their necks. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, the cross was nothing but an instrument of torture and death in the hands of the Romans. When Jesus says that, he's calling us to a life of profound self-sacrifice. He's calling us to a life of sacrifice to the point of death, if need be. To live in Christ is a call to acknowledge that his death was not only a means for our sins to be forgiven, but also a call for us to give up our own desire, to give up our own preferences, even give up our own lives for the sake of God's purposes. And one area of my own life that I see myself kind of failing to embrace that has kind of been in my response to this pandemic and all the things that are required through it. Right? So often, when I think about the pandemic and all these things, like my thought turned to like, when is this thing going to go away? When are things going to get back to normal? Like, especially like in leading the church. Like I'm tired of having to filter every decision through the lens of COVID. Like, it's not the church to be able to do the things that it has typically done. That's the, the desire of my heart. But in studying this passage this morning, like or this week, I just got convicted that my focus on the church being the way that I like it, my focus on the church being a place where I'm comfortable, is not in line with Jesus' call to take up my cross and to follow him. But to focus on what I want from the church, if I just focus on that, like it's not acknowledging that Jesus came by water and by blood. The call of the Christian life is a call to self-sacrificial life focused on glorifying God and proclaiming the gospel. Not a call to make church life as comfortable as possible. So as long as the question I'm asking myself is, like, when will church get back to the way I like it? Like, 
I realize like, I'm not fully embracing the call of Jesus. And I wonder if maybe some of us gathered here, watching online, have found ourselves falling into the same pattern of thinking. Let me just suggest two possible ways that, especially in the light of COVID and all that's going on, like maybe we failed to embrace the self-sacrificial nature of Jesus' call on our lives. So one of the, one of the gifts of the pandemic like, has been the way that it has forced churches to like, rapidly accelerate, accelerate like, their use of technology and their ability to live stream. And we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Bob and people working in the back to like, make live streaming possible for us. That kind of technology is a gift to people who can't make it to church, either because of concern for their health in the light of COVID or for other reasons. However, that technology can also pose a bit of a threat, which is that like, even for people without health concern, it can be tempting to choose to stay home, watch church later on your own timeline, watch church in your pajamas, right, rather than you know, physically coming to church. Or worse, like it's tempting to like skip church altogether and just like assume, well, people will assume that I watched online. They won't know. And so, like, let me be clear. Like, if you're watching right now online because you have genuine health concerns, we are glad you're joining us that way. We're glad to be able to offer live streaming for that purpose. However, if you're watching online because it's easier, it's more convenient, can I suggest that maybe you're not embracing Jesus called the self-sacrifice in this area? You're not embracing the fact that the church is the body of Christ, that we're a community, and so when possible and when safe, like, we need you here. We need each other. We need to, in the word of Hebrews, gather together to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So, like, again, if you have good reason for not being at church, then by all means, like, we're glad you're able to watch online. But if you're choosing between coming in person or coming or watching online based on what is easier or more comfortable, like, then I just urge you to be here. To gather with your brothers and sisters. Like, to encourage them and to love them and to spur them on. On the other hand, like, there's some of us gathered here but your thought, kind of like my thought, is like, we just want things to get back to normal. Right? We want to get church to get back to doing the things the way that church has always done them. We want church to be back to the way we like it. And I would once again suggest that maybe that way of thinking is not embracing Jesus' call to self-sacrifice. The church does not exist ultimately to be a social club that puts on events that we like or to facilitate our ability to hang out with our Christian friends in an environment insulated from the world. The church exists to be an outpost of the kingdom of God to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and broken world in need of redemption and of healing. And we must embrace that. And how we most effectively proclaim the good news of Jesus to a broken world may look different in the time of COVID than it did before. It may even look different after COVID than it did before. That may make us a little bit uncomfortable. It may not be just the way we like it. 
But if we're going to embrace that Jesus came by water and blood, not water only, but water and blood, if we're going to embrace that Jesus called us to live a self-sacrificial life dedicated to his service, then we must be willing to put aside what we want from church and instead concern ourselves with what Jesus wants from the church. If we're going to live a life that abides in Jesus, that is dedicated to Jesus, then we must embrace every aspect of who he is and how he has called us to live. Even when it's uncomfortable. Even when it's difficult. And failing to do so is to call God a liar. So my prayer for us as a church in the days and the years ahead, even as we move beyond COVID, is that we are a church that's committed to doing the things that God wants us to do, that God has called us to do, more so than the things that we want to do, the things that make us comfortable. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for both his life and his death. Both the things he taught us, the things he modeled for us, and for the fact that he died for all the times that we fail to live up to the things he taught us, for all the times that we fail to live the life that he modeled for us. God, I pray that we would embrace the call to take up our cross, to follow him, to live lives dedicated to proclaiming the good news of your kingdom to our friends and our family and our co-workers and our neighbors and people we interact with who don't know you. The desire of the church would be to equip us we would gather together here to be encouraged and equipped and spurred on then to go out into the world, a world in desperate need of redemption and to proclaim the good news of Jesus. We would not gather here to do events that we like or to be comfortable, but we would gather here to be spurred on, to share the gospel, to love others well, to bring glory your name. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to go, we leave here hopefully encouraged to do what we just said, to go and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to a hurting and needy and broken world. Hear these words from Paul at the benediction. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Go in peace. You're dismissed.